You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Ladies, uh, gentlemen, friends, colleagues, you're all very, very welcome. Um, my name is Jane Oldmeyer, and it's always my privilege to chair uh, these wonderful uh, events tonight in the Thomas Davis Lecture Theatre here in Trinity. I'm welcoming everybody who's in the auditorium, but we are trying to live stream. It didn't work last time, we're hoping it's going to work tonight. So if you're following us online, you're extremely welcome indeed. Uh, as I say, my name is Jane Ollmeyer, and I'm the director of the Trinity at Long Room uh, Hub, which is our research uh, institute in the arts and humanities. And now here we are on the eve of International Women's Day, uh, and we're really delighted to be partnering this evening, actually, with Liverpool University and the Institute of Irish Studies. So Lauren Arrington is our representative from Liverpool. Anybody else in the audience from Liverpool or Liverpool graduates? No, fun day. Great, delighted. You're very, very welcome. Um, and uh, our discussion this evening uh, explores if and how the position of women in society has changed over the century uh, since women finally gained the right to vote. Um, I think it's going to be an interesting discussion. Uh, before introducing you to our fantastic uh, panel, I, I just want to remind everybody what it is that we do in the Trinity Long Room Hub. Um, we support the excellence uh, of the research in the arts and humanities. We promote multi and interdisciplinarity. And this evening, we have a lawyer speaking, we have a literary specialist speaking, we have a uh, an English scholar uh, speaking, and Susan, actually your literature uh, as well, so it's a, a lovely mix. Um, and the final thing we do is public humanities. We want to take the learning of the arts and humanities to the widest audiences, both here in Dublin and across the world. Um, this is part of our Behind the Headlines uh, 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 signature lecture series or discussion series, and we're extremely grateful to the Don Pollard Foundation uh, who very generously, uh, uh, their funding uh, supports uh, these events. What we're very keen to do is, through our discussions, is bring um, uh, complexity to uh, these issues and to explore that from the perspectives of the arts and humanities. Um, but we want to do it in a very respectful way, um, uh, and one that, as I say, embraces nuance and combats oversimplification. And this is, I think, one area where it's very much uh, in the headlines, and I think having uh, uh, the wider context is, is, is incredibly uh, important. Because as we know, on the 6th of February, uh, 1918, the Representation of the People Act was enacted in the United Kingdom, giving approximately 8 million people in England, uh, Wales, Scotland, and here in Ireland the right to vote, including after decades of campaigning by suffragettes, uh, uh, six million uh, women. The century uh, has been, uh, sorry, the centenary has been a cause uh, for celebration, um, and I think it's particularly appropriate that we're having this on the eve of International uh, Women's Day. Um, but also the sudden eruption of the hashtag MeToo movement around the world in the last few months has brought into the spotlight the question of 
just how far women have advanced uh, towards equality in uh, uh, the past hundred years. Really lucky this evening to have a fabulous uh, panel. I'm going to uh, introduce uh, each of them. And the order I introduce them is the order that they will uh, speak. So Lauren Arrington is a, a senior lecturer at the Institute of Irish Studies in Liverpool. Uh, um, and she's director of the Yates Summer School, or was between, well, 1819, uh, uh, she's the director. Um, Lauren also has been a visiting research fellow at the Trinity Long Room Hub, I think twice now, Lauren, is that correct? Uh, so I feel she, I'm claiming her as one of ours. Um, she, she's just written a, a wonderful new book on Constance Markovitz, of course, uh, uh, the, the first female minister, um, uh, and somebody of whom we're enormously proud. Uh, and it'll be an aspect of that that, that that Lauren is going to explore this evening with us. Our next speaker is Deirdre Hearn, um, who is in our law school here in uh, Trinity. Um, uh, she uh, has spoken and written extensively on Irish uh, 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 corporate uh, law, and she is uh, particularly interested in looking at um, how women are represented uh, at the uh, decision-making table in, in business, uh, but she's also very concerned about gender representation on uh, corporate boards. Our third speaker this evening probably needs very little introduction because he's our much-loved Dean of Arts, Humanities and Social Science, uh, Daryl uh, Jones, uh, who uh, is also um, uh, an expert on uh, popular literature, Jane Austen and horror. One of the most entertaining lectures you can ever attend is Daryl when he's talking about horror. It really is. But tonight, actually, Daryl is wearing more of a university uh, uh, hat, and uh, he will address the hashtag uh, MeToo uh, um, uh, discussion uh, uh, in the context of uh, uh, harassment uh, in the uh, universities. Now, it's a very critical moment, I think, here for universities, as well as other institutions as they undergo this process of self-examination and self-realisation. And as I say, uh, uh, Daryl will talk about that. Then last but not least is Susan Cattell, who is um, Professor in the School of Irish Studies at Concordia University in Montreal. And we're very lucky that uh, Susan is with us this evening, but she's actually a visiting research fellow at the Institute of English Studies in the School of Advanced uh, Studies uh, in London. So uh, she's over to do uh, this this evening. But also she's speaking uh, tomorrow night, and I'll actually come back to that in a moment, but let me just tell you, uh, uh, her research interests include Irish women's writing, Irish girls' literary uh, cultures, uh, and uh, young adult fiction. And this evening, she explore the role of personal testimony and the politics of storytelling in feminist activism in Ireland. But I should also say, Susan is speaking tomorrow night at the launch of a wonderful new exhibition in the library called uh, Story Spinners. And she'll be talking uh, uh, about a, a history of wild Irish girls. Now, it's already fully booked. But maybe, you know, you can squeeze in. But if not, it'll be podcast and hopefully live-streamed as, as well. Um, the format for the discussion is as it always is. It's at nine minutes. Each of our speakers has nine minutes. And those of you who've been here before, we're very strict about that. Um, and then we'll open the floor to questions where we're equally strict. I'll come to that in a moment. 
Um, we would love you to join us. Obviously, you can put your phones on to silent, but do tweet if any of you are tweeters using uh, the hashtag #HubMatters. It's uh, here on the screen. Um, we are being live streamed this evening, so again, everybody's aware of that, uh, and um, it's going to be particularly important in the Q and A. But I'll, I'll come back to that after we have heard from uh, our first. Uh, panelists. So, Lauren, without further ado, uh, uh, over to you. Thanks, Jane. Thank you all for coming along this evening. Me Too is the 21st century manifestation of at least a 100-year history of women using alternative forms of media to campaign against sexual violence. The rapid technological advances of the 19th century led to a democratization of the press. There was a simultaneous increase in demand for inexpensive newspapers and magazines as new readerships were grouped around new movements and causes, most notably a new working class readership. This momentum carried on into the early years of the 20th century and was harnessed here in Dublin by the Irish Transport and General Workers Union in its newspaper, The Irish Worker, and by the suffrage movement in the newspaper, The Irish Citizen. This pattern of technological innovation going hand in hand with campaigns for social change, as we've experienced in Me Too and Repeal the Eighth, is the latest iteration of a centuries-long pattern. The newspaper, The Irish Citizen, launched a bold campaign against the sexual assault of women and young girls that was occurring across Ireland. The Citizen indicted the mainstream press for its tendency to sensationalize violence against women and its failure to report assaults accurately. For example, an article titled Irish Girls' Peril was on the front page of The Irish Citizen on the 3rd of May, 1913 and it focused on an attack on three young girls in Limerick when one of them was bound and gagged. A passerby heard the girls' screams and interrupted the assailant before the girls were assaulted any further. In its report, the citizen charges the mainstream press for reserving, quote, its leaded type for dastardly outrages of suffragettes on unprotected golf greens and empty mansions of the rich, it confined only the callous appellation of exciting incident for attempted rape. The citizen's rhetoric is powerful, using the phrase leaded type to depict mainstream reporting as a weapon used against suffragists. Moreover, the citizen charges the mainstream press for using the word outrages to refer to the activities of suffragists. In its contemporary context, outrage was a euphemism for rape, as in the phrase, she was outraged, which encodes both the physical assault on the person and the emotional response of the person who was assaulted and her associates. The use of outrage was common in the 1910s and the 1920s, and we even see it in police reports from the Irish Civil War about, about the rape of women. In its campaign, the citizen targeted the Irish independent in particular 
And here, I think we can see an overlap between the suffrage and the working class leaderships, since the William Martin Murphy-owned independent was also frequently targeted by the Irish worker. The third of my citizen article is referring to a piece in the independent from the 24th of April, headlined, Young, Soldier, Young Solicitors Plucky Act. It begins with the line, the independent article, an exciting incident occurred at Ballinacurra Limerick on Tuesday evening. The independent names the assaulted girl in full and gives her age, but the article is ambiguous as to the identity of the assailant. Says merely, the prisoner whose name is Walsh has been remanded. No age and Walsh being a common name. The naming of women in press reports contributes to shame, stigma, and one can infer would be an impediment to women reporting crimes against them. <coughs> the citizen sometimes details the age of young women and girls who are assaulted in order to underline the severity of the crisis. Uh, some girls were assaulted. Um, uh, who were assaulted were as young as six years of age. But the citizen never disposes these girls or women's identity. By contrast, the sensational reporting in The Independent valorizes masculine heroics and reports on rape as an exciting piece of gossip. That article, Young Solicitor's Plucky Act, concludes, the incident is the general topic of conversation in Limerick, and Mr. Moran's plucky conduct is widely praised. Giving further attention to the language used in mainstream reports of sexual violence, we can see the frequent recurrence of the word exciting. The same word was also used to refer to women's activism. So the 2nd of May, 1913, Irish Independent, just days after the report on the assault in Limerick, there's a report on a suffrage meeting that's given the subtitle, Exciting Incident. The mainstream media's co-option of a word with sexual connotations in its contemporary usage to describe suffrage activities has the effect of allegorizing women as the aggressors, positioning them as responsible for the violence enacted against them. So I'd like to conclude by summarizing some of the Irish citizens' activism. It's important here to highlight the pioneering work of the scholar Louise Ryan who brought to life the work of the Watching the Courts Committee, a committee of women who attended proceedings on cases of sexual violence in order to give detailed accounts of acquittals and of what they regarded as the unjust sentencing of assailants. These women had to fight to be present in the courts in the first place. When they were there, they took detailed notes and published their findings in the Simpson. Again, protecting the identity of the women and children who were assaulted, but naming the assailants, including assailants who had transmitted venereal disease to the assaulted persons. Again, some of the girls who contracted disease as a result of sexual assault were as young as six years of age. The Irish citizen persistently advocated sexual education, the use of accurate terminology, and the abolition of euphemisms in order to fully address the crisis facing women in Irish society. It emphasized that if parents were to educate their children about sex, then children would at least be prepared um, with the need to protect themselves from assault. When the citizens ceased publication in 1920, women had the vote, but it would be another year before women, including Marion Duggan, who was uh, the founder and chairman of the Watching the Courts Committee, 
could practice law and sit on juries in the trials of men who had assaulted women and children. So we can say that activists in the 1910s and 20s were instrumental to women gaining visibility and participation in civic life. Yet we still observe today the media's reports on sexual violence that give attention that centers on the assaulted rather than on the assailant. And this is where I think Me Too's campaign to put a name to the act of rape and to name rapists is making some of its most important impact. Many legal advances have been made over this century that are worth celebrating. 
foot, and it's a large one. In 2018, there was still a pronounced disconnect between how our law values gender equality in abstract terms and the reality of how gender decision-making continues to play out in the form of considerable gender imbalance. Although the suffragettes were firmly focused on their catch crime, votes for women, the bottom line is that simply giving women the same rights as men is not enough. I guess my take-home message is that law may assist with changing norms, but it's not a complete answer. That's because gender equality requires norms to be internalised by a society, as well as being externalised in law. In the absence of that buy-in, there are marked uh, inequalities in everyday experiences of women who really are not likely to run into court every time they feel the affront of the inequity of being treated differently than their male counterparts. This raises the spectre that women are equal in name only. My point is that law on its own is good, but not good enough. Legal change also needs a society to change, and vice versa. Let's talk about the gender pay gap. <laughs> Unequal pay was par for the course in 1918 for women worked. Today, despite the principle of equal pay being enshrined in law, there is a 14% gender pay gap in Ireland. That meant that last year women were working for free from the 17th of November on. <laughs> As we speak, you know, this is not just a notional concept. In Tesco, the women uh, on the shop floor are taking a £4 million equal pay claim uh, against Tesco because they're being paid £3 less than their predominantly male counterparts in the warehouse, although they're still stocking shelves in both locations. Also in the newspapers, it's been reported that Emma, Emma Stone uh, of La La Land fame uh, has come to some agreements with her male co-stars who've agreed to take pay cuts in order to afford her pay equality. And that was portrayed as, as some kind of victory. Over at the BBC, uh, Carrie Grace, who was China editor, as you know, resigned in protest at unlawful pay discrimination. And following on from this, six of the highest paid presenters uh, in the BBC agreed uh, to take a pay cut. For me, this type of levelling down phenomenon is problematic as a means of achieving equality. Uh, essentially, it's a zero-sum a zero game, whereby for women to gain, men must lose, and ultimately the overall net change in wealth is zero. Perhaps more fundamentally, it's, un it's objectionable because um, it doesn't require employees to do anything, employers to do anything, they're off the hook, uh, instead of having to make changes uh, and embedding equal treatment as such the way things are done. Could the law do more to uh, address pay discrimination? Well, speaking in 1913, someone ahead of his time, perhaps, uh, Justice Brandeis in the US, uh, later to be a US Supreme Court judge, um, said that sunlight is the best disinfectant. What he meant by that was, if you bring undesirable practices out into the open and public scrutiny, it's amazing how efficient it is at cleaning them up. <laughs> In that vein, legally mandating transparency around pay um, could make uh, companies' decisions uh, more objectively justifiable. In fact, gender metric reporting is beginning to take off, 
in other countries, uh, in the UK, from next month, larger countries are going to have to report on their gender pay gaps. Uh, Iceland has taken things a step further. Uh, their companies uh, from the 1st of January this year have to be certified as equal pay compliant or risk a criminal offence and a fine. And that's designed to completely eradicate their gender pay gap by 2022. All of this highlights the need to, to get women to the top table where decisions are being made. As you all know, there's been huge interest in the subject of uh, women's representation on boards over the last number of years, and the problem of boards being pale, male, and stale. <laughs> Sometimes some good old uh, fashioned activism in the spirit of the stuff against Mark's retreat. Uh, in 2012, when Facebook announced that it, its IPO was coming and that its board would be uh, all male, there was a pretty big backlash. Ultraviolet, uh, a group of uh, women's activists, gathered 53,000 signatures to their petition, uh, seeking a woman to be added to the board. Facebook listened. Uh, whatever about her leaning in, this push is what actually led to Sheryl Sandberg's elevation to the board of Facebook. Brings me to the big debate on quotas. Norway led away on this by introducing um, a quota that's fairly tough in terms of requiring listed companies to have 40% women on their boards or face warnings, penalties, or the ultimate pulling of the plug in terms of delisting from the stock exchange. A number of other countries in Europe have followed suit. Of course, quotas are controversial. However, whether you love them or hate them, it's incontrovertible that they plainly work. Statistics show that when a quota applies, progress in improving a frankly woeful rate of women's participation uh, is immeasurably different than it would be if left to the free market. Having said that, quotas do not address the problem of companies making token appointments of one or two isolated women without integrating equality or diversity as a core value. Clearly, hearts need to be won as well as minds. In conclusion, laws built upon the 1918 Representation Against the People Act have played an important role as an agent of change. Yet, despite major advances to remove discriminatory practices, gender equalities persist. One of the reasons that we're still playing catch-up is that laws may often prove irrelevant to the daily lives of everyday women, where either conscious or unconscious bias presents itself. Boardroom and gender pay gaps reveal a society which has not fully internalised gender equality as a core value, even where the law supports it. A paradigm shift is needed. As tonight shows, it would be a mistake to underestimate the power of the Me Too movement as a force for change. Its ripple effects have the potential to blast open outdated mindsets and to radically recalibrate the equality set point. To paraphrase Justin Trudeau, because it's 2018. <laughs> Thank you.
This was an aspect of the university's Breaking the Silence campaign, which had been instituted in large part as a response to student concerns. Cambridge publicly admitted to having a significant problem with sexual misconduct. Other UK universities, such as Manchester, have established similar reporting systems. The at me to PhD hashtag has brought to public attention hundreds of episodes of sexism and sexual harassment in universities, including in the behaviour of students towards female lecturers who report often being judged on their looks and who regularly receive less favourable student feedback than male colleagues. Universities are not the only institutions to be undergoing this process of self-examination and realisation. News also broke in February 2018 that the UK Parliament was instituting a crackdown on harassment and bullying after a survey revealed that 20% of Westminster staff had experienced or witnessed sexual misconduct, and 39% had been the victims of bullying. This is a critical, if not an existential, moment for universities and other institutions. Universities are particularly vulnerable issues of sexual misconduct. We have lots of young people. If we're being honest, we have to realise that universities have historically performed many functions, and one of them is as a kind of dating agency. <laughs> Marriage markets. Uh, I met my wife. <laughs> when we were postgraduate students. A university is also an institution in which there can be significant imbalances of status, power, and knowledge, say, between older male staff and their younger female colleagues or students. I have no reason to believe we in Trinity are in better or worse off than other universities, but I think that this is an issue which has the potential to affect all universities very profoundly. We can't pretend this is not happening. What are we going to do? In thinking about and preparing this talk, I spoke to many friends and colleagues, mostly women, about the Me Too movement. I got a wide variety of responses. There is no consensus. There is no one answer to this. The only thing I can say, and perhaps this is the only substantive point I have to make here tonight, is that we have to talk about this. We have to have an open, frank discussion held in good faith about sexual misconduct in universities. We need to recognise that, as in Westminster, this discussion may be spread out to related issues of bullying and other abuses of power. University management has to participate in this discussion. But most importantly, it has to listen. The most practical piece of advice I got uh, from discussing Me Too with friends uh, was that men have a habit of interrupting women when they're talking. <laughs> and we shouldn't do it. It's a, it's a matter of power, and I, I really hate it when it happens. 
conversation like this to take place in any official way, as it deals with issues of sexual inequality and of sexual violence and of the relations between the two. There are some universities in which tonight's event would not be allowed to happen. Sadly, in Ireland, we know a lot about cultures of silence. Whatever the answer is, it's not that. Do I think the Cambridge's anonymous hotline for reporting sexual misconduct is a good idea? Yes, I think it probably is. But the real question for me is what do you do next? Here in Trinity, we do have a very good dignity and respect policy, and I want to publicly endorse it now. Anyone who is the victim of sexual misconduct or other uh, sexual harassment or other misconduct should immediately go to their college tutor, if a student, or their immediate line manager in the first instance of a member of staff, or one of the college's designated contact persons. In saying this, I have to acknowledge that, of course, due process is important, and I would urge anyone who is a victim of harassment to immediately to talk to a contact person. But it's easy to see why a young female student or lecturer, for example, might be very reluctant to go through a protracted and painful formal complaint and disciplinary process of perhaps ambiguous outcome against, for example, a senior male professor who may well be in a position of power and influence over their future career. People need to feel confident that they will be supported by the university's structures. But certainly, the Cambridge student agitation that led to the breaking of the silence campaign grew in large part out of a widespread distrust in the efficacy of internal disciplinary procedures. They just didn't seem to work. This kind of impossible situation is exactly why the Me Too movement has gained such momentum. A feeling that systems and structures of law discipline and justice are inadequate to the lived reality of the situation. In the UK, the National Union of Students Women's Movement has proposed that disciplinary cases arising out of allegations of sexual harassment should be judged on the balance of probabilities rather than on a criminal standard of proof. In practice, I should say that this is how Trinity's investigation system also works a judgment made by an investigator on the balance of probabilities after speaking to all sides. Laura Olufemi, Cambridge Students' Union Women's Officer, has written of, quote, the need for a profound culture shift in the ways we, we teach, learn, and use university space in relation to sexual harassment and violence. If I had the answer to this, or anyone did, we'd be talking about something else tonight. But we can start by publicly naming the problem. <coughs> in getting involved in this discussion, we have to recognise that we will get lots of things wrong. And we have to hold our nerves when we do. I've come to believe that humanity is psychologically capable of assimilating the developments of the internet and social media at anything like the speed we need to in order to keep up. 
online culture has led to an exponential increase in what the sociologist Stanley Cohen called back in the 1970s, folk devils and moral panics. When we make mistakes, we need to acknowledge them. Sometimes we will say the wrong thing or a well-meaning thing clumsily, as I may well be doing tonight. But we need to take part in the conversation with integrity, without being afraid of the consequences when we do get things wrong. To close, to begin to close, sexual harassment is often permitted by power imbalances. So, I would venture that one practical step might be to reduce the power imbalances. In universities, what I mean by that is that there should be women at senior levels in positions of power and authority. Straightforwardly, we need to promote more women. I've long been a believer in affirmative action or positive discrimination when it comes to promoting women, who I know most people disagree with me. But still, only about 34% of the women's of the university's professors are women. So we can't say there isn't a problem. So this is an issue of protecting the vulnerable from the powerful. Promoting more women would certainly help do this. But in arguing for this, what I wouldn't want to do is to replicate the frankly masculinist competitive culture on even more women. We need to be a more thoughtful university. Universities need to be more thoughtful. Universities are, after all, the places where we say we hold up society's values to critical scrutiny. Where we say we teach young people about the virtues of civilization and the responsibilities of intellectual citizenship. But it isn't good enough simply to say these things. We have to live by them. We have to say we don't do these kinds of things anymore. If we can't offer a model of this, if we can't offer a model of the civilized society, one in which victimization and the abuse of power should have no place, then no one can. Thank you very much. Private. 
It was not a conversation that had been had in Irish theatre in public. Bell has noted the outpouring of voices, personal testimony and stories that flooded from Irish women. And support also followed from celebrities such as Sirius Ronan and Meryl Streep. The public music in November 2015 that sold out in less than seven minutes featured 30 women on the Abbey stage, each with a slot of 90, minutes, 90 seconds, <laughs> recounting their experiences. As freelance curator Rosha Gowan responded on social media, I can't say how relieved I am that Waking Feminist has finally given voice to the experiences of so many women in Irish theatre. Thank God we are finally talking about it. The campaign lasted a year, and it led to real and substantial change. The Abbey listened and produced a set of guiding principles, including making gender equality a permanent board agenda item. And this, as Bella's noted, had put the Abbey at the vanguard of change in relation to gender equality in national theatres. The Arts Council commissioned research into the statistics, and their report was published in June last year. Members of Waiting the Feminists are now on the Abbey Board and the Arts Council. For Bell, one of the major results has been the normalisation of this type of conversation around gender representation. Before Waking the Feminists, as she recounts, this was almost unspeakable, especially at the organisational and public level. The feminists were awake and they were talking. The end of 2015 was also significant for women's voices, as in September, journalist Roisin Ingle and actress and comedian Tara Flynn both told their personal stories about their experiences being forced to travel for an abortion. Their personal testimony sparked further stories of women's experiences, including my own, powerfully rerouting a formerly shamed silence into compassionate calls to listen, to trust, and to empathise. Una Mullally's crowdfunded anthology of literature, personal stories, and art on the Repeal the Eighth Movement is currently in press, and that's due for publication this spring. Facebook groups and websites like In Her Shoes and Everyday Stories are featuring personal <coughs> testimonies of women's experiences around abortion. The Exile Project is a gallery of women who have been forced to travel. Grace Dias and Emma Fraser's performance piece, Not at Home, is set in the waiting room of a clinic and features women sharing their experiences. Of course, we know from the important work of second-wave feminists that the personal is political, that stories of personal experiences can have broad-ranging effects, both in their ordinariness and in the extraordinariness of the fact that they need to be said. Michael Jackson, anthropologist, not the singer, <laughs> writes about the politics of storytelling. When one tells stories, he writes, one is never simply giving voice to what is in one's own mind or in one's own interests. One is realising or objectifying one's own experience in ways that others can relate to through experiences of their own. So in other words, storytelling and personal testimony are means of connection, and in this connection a means of forming communities. And this has been a profound effect of Waking the Feminists, Repeal, and Me Too. 
the ways in which allies have been identified and communities have been forged. Stories make us seen and make us heard. Re-energised in 2012 with the establishment of the Abortion Rights Campaign and the Coalition to Repeal the Eighth Amendment in 2013, the campaign has also been helped not just by voice, but through visual aids. Anna Cosgrave's repeal jumpers have been instrumental in bringing this community into visibility. We can now actually see each other, hear each other, and because of this can stand together. Jackson continues, Stories disclose not just who we are, but what we have in common with others. What is remarkable since Me Too, since Waking the Feminists, and new developments in the repeal campaign, is an increased platform for women's voices and stories, and an increased visibility for this activism. What was extraordinary for me was Leo Varadkar's press conference in which he announced the government's backing for a referendum to repeal the eighth, particularly his language, which echoed the language of the repeal campaign and the language of the personal testimonies of women who had travelled, and in which he explains his change of attitude to the fact that, quote, Above all, I listened to women. The Citizens' Assembly also acknowledged the importance of hearing women's voices and experiences in their recommendation to reveal the eighth. I told my story for exactly this reason, as well as to connect to the thousands of women who were forced to travel and whose stories we are hearing. Roshan Ingle and Tara Flynn's stories gave me permission to tell mine, and I wanted to contribute to that permission giving. The more voices, the louder we become, the less they can ignore us. This conversation is far from over, though, and there is much work to be done. I know how hard it is simply to have conversations about repeal with friends and family and strangers. When friends spoke to me about my experience, an interesting thing happened, and I noticed that some of them couldn't actually quite say the word abortion. They were whispering it. They were almost afraid when it was appearing in their mouths. But that time for silence is over. We need to erupt to change the landscape in Ireland, have difficult conversations in order to make connections, in order to create empathy, and in order to bring about change. As poet Muriel Rukeyser writes, what would happen if one woman told the truth about her life? The world would split open. Thank you.